So Clyburn gets up from his seat in the debate hall in the audience, and he makes a beeline for the exit. And the people around him, his friends think, oh, he's a 79-year-old guy. He must really have to pee. You know, commercial break, he's getting out, coming back. Uh, but it turns out what he was doing is he's running backstage to go find Biden. And, you know, Pete Buttigieg comes up to say hello, and Clyburn's, yeah, yeah, whatever, uh, and, and goes and finds Biden. And he says, look, I told you that I wanted you to say that you were going to name a black woman to the Supreme Court. You haven't done it yet. You've had a bunch of opportunities. Don't you dare leave this stage without doing it. That was the journalist Jonathan Allen on a Skullduggery episode last March describing the fateful moment when Joe Biden was campaigning on the ropes during the South Carolina primary in February 2020, agreed to name an African-American woman to the Supreme Court. It was a commitment made under intense political pressure from House Majority Whip James Clyburn, the most powerful black politician in the state. But it paid off big time. Biden made his pledge, Clyburn endorsed the next morning, and the former vice president won a resounding victory in South Carolina, putting his campaign on a glide path to the nomination. And now Biden's nearly two-year-old campaign pledge has become newly relevant as Justice Stephen Breyer announced his plans to step down from the court at the end of his term, giving the Democratic president his first chance to select the nominee. Who will Biden actually pick and how much difference will it make? We'll discuss with two veteran Supreme Court watchers, Dahlia Lithwick of Slate and Jess Braven of the Wall Street Journal on this episode of Skullduggery. I do solemnly swear that I will faithfully execute the office of President of the United States. And will, to the best of my ability, preserve, protect, and defend the Constitution of the United States. So help me God. 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 I'm Michael Isikoff, Chief Investigative Correspondent for Yahoo News. I'm Dan Clydman, Editor-in-Chief of Yahoo News. And I'm Victoria Bassetti, a fellow at the Brennan Center for Justice. And we are joined by the aforementioned Dahlia Lithwick and Jess Braven. Welcome back to Skullduggery to both of you. Hey there. Delightful. <laughs> Glideful. Okay. So look, a lot to talk about here, but I just find the story of the Clyburn pressure on Biden, don't leave that stage without making a commitment, just really revealing. And Biden has made the commitment. He reaffirmed it at the White House with Breyer uh, on uh, Thursday. And look, nobody questions that it's more than the right time to have an African-American on the Supreme Court. But it does strike me as we're in new territory here. I mean, when we had a Jewish seat on the Supreme Court and Woodrow Wilson names Brandeis and Roosevelt names Frankfurter and, you know, uh, Johnson names uh, Arthur Goldberg and then Abe Fortas, they didn't actually say, I'm naming, this is the Jewish seat. We need a Jew for this seat. Um, when Eisenhower names Brennan, even though he was picking him because he was a Catholic, he didn't say, I'm picking him for a Catholic. Is it a good thing to sort of explicitly say a Supreme Court pick is going to be named because of his or her ethnicity? Dahlia, take that one. I mean, look, the obvious first crack at this is that Ronald Reagan did this, right? It's if you want to talk about gender, Ronald Reagan very explicitly said, I will seat the first woman justice. Um, by the way, he did that under pressure from a lot of women's groups. So it feels similar to the Clyburn story insofar as there's some sense that he's struggling and he needs to make a symbolic gesture or that this is either a, a constituency that he hasn't taking care of or that have taken good care of him and that he he should reward. And I think this goes back a long time. So then the question is, what does it mean to say it out loud, right? And what does it mean to pledge in advance that you're going to do it? And again, you know, let's be super clear. Even Donald Trump uh, was very clear that he wanted a woman in Amy Coney Barrett, that he held that seat for her so that a woman could replace RBG and that, in fact, a woman could overturn Roe. So I guess I sort of think 
That's slightly different from should there be a quote unquote Jewish seat or a quote unquote Catholic seat at the court. That's always felt a little hinky to me for the reasons you just laid out. But I think it's a somewhat separate question from what does it mean when a president makes a pledge of this sort? You know, Trump made a pledge that he would seat somebody who would overturn Roe v. Wade. So that pledge feels more problematic in some sense, because it feels as though it's narrowing the pool. But I guess what I'm saying is it's always happened. It's just whether you say that quiet part out loud. It just strikes me as there's a, a precedent being set here that you know may not be a good thing down the road, because once you've made that, then, OK, when do we are you going to commit to naming an Hispanic? Or are you going to be commit to be naming, you know, another Catholic or, you know, there is a slippery slope here that I wonder, Jess, what do you make of it? Well, you know, one way I sort of look at it is, you know, as, as Dolly points out, this is, law, you know, using uh, Supreme Court appointments and other appointments uh, as kind of uh, spoils of, of uh, victory uh, has a long history. And, you know, uh, President Johnson, 1967, civil rights era. He's done a lot of things for, for African-Americans. He's going to put the first African-American on the Supreme Court. He actually he basically blackmails a Supreme Court justice to resign, Tom Clark, to make room for Thurgood Marshall, right? And uh, and look who, he, so he has appointed the, you know, the most prominent black lawyer in the country to be to the Supreme Court. When Justice Marshall retires, President George H.W. Bush scours the country for, I believe he said, someone the most qualified nominee, and that turns out to be Clarence Thomas, who also happens to be Black and the perfect person to undo everything that Thurgood Marshall worked for his whole life, because though he was Black, he didn't agree with Marshall's jurisprudence. I think the interesting thing about Biden, and I might make this actually more Biden-specific, Biden does seem to have a habit of, of being more candid about a lot of things that he's normally, the politicians normally are supposed to lie about. So he said, I'm going to pick a black woman. I could easily believe the campaign internally deciding to do that, making private assurances and what have you. And then they pretend to look at other people and have a lot of people come and buy, but they already know what they're going to do. Just, he did the same thing with uh, just a few weeks earlier with Ukraine. He said out loud, yeah, if they take a little bit of Ukraine, who cares? You know, but if they overworld, you know, overrun the entire country, that might be more serious, right? He said the same thing with Afghanistan. We're leaving on this day. I don't care. We're out. Bye. So this is like Biden, you know, he's he's not disingenuous enough for the job, you could say. But normally politicians lie about this stuff when they know what they're gonna do anyway. So is it better to have a president who simply says what he already intends to do? and that his advisors know and his political allies know and basically tells everybody what the insiders know? Or is it better for him for the purposes of uh, the suspended uh, disbelief we need for democracy to function, for him to simply pretend that he's actually looking at other people, have them come by and have nice photo ops for them and improve their obituaries when they can say they were considered for a Supreme Court seat and then ultimately you know, do what he already was gonna do? I don't know, what, what is better? I can't say, is candor better when it's a little uncomfortable? than kind of more pretend approach to it. What I would say is if we're worried about setting dangerous precedents here, I don't think we have to worry too much about presidents from here on out, politicians not lying anymore about these kinds of things. So uh, we may revert back A to the norm. A new dawn of candor in Supreme yeah, we, Court uh, <laughs> nominations. We may revert back to the norm. But um, just on the substantive question, I mean, the historic nature of this pick. Dahlia, let's start with you. Why is it important and what impact will it have, both symbolically and substantively? And I know on the substance side, it's hard to say without having a nominee, but do the best you can. I mean, let's stipulate it's going to be a 6-3 supermajority regardless, and at least based on the front runners. And I don't put a ton, a ton of stock in who the front runner is right now, I think that one of the reasons they gave themselves a little time to make this announcement is that they are going to do a little bit of serious vetting. But I don't think any of these candidates are wild lefties, maybe with the exception of Sherilyn Eiffel from the NAACP Legal Defense Fund, who, by the way, I don't think is a real choice only because she's almost 60. And in, you know, this era where we pick 14 year olds, she's just too old. Um, we're looking at candidates who are, you know, in their mid 40s and early 50s. You want to mention who those candidates are? 
Oh, sure. Yeah. I mean, I think the front runners at, at this exact moment are, you know, uh, Katanji Brown Jackson, who is probably the front runner, uh, who sits on the D.C. Circuit Court of Appeals. And probably the front runner, Jess may disagree, but I think uh, simply because she just went through a nomination hearing to be elevated uh, to the D.C. Circuit less than a year ago and got three Republican senators to support her. And so I think it's an easy, easy lift. The three Republicans who supported her don't really have a reason to peel away now. And she just looks like a good nominee. Leandra Kruger is the other one who is a California Supreme Court justice who's five years younger to the extent that being close to the age of 14 is what matters. And she had a really important role at the Solicitor General's office in the Obama administration, and she's a serious candidate. And then uh, Judge J. Michelle Childs, who is the Clyburn favorite that you started off with. And I think that's the list of frontrunners. Um, you all can correct me. But just to answer quickly the, the question, I don't think any of those is the equivalent on the left of a Sam Alito or a Clarence Thomas on the right. Those are much more centrist moderates. So they may be fractionally to the left of a briar. I don't think any of them are going to be close to uh, Sonia Sotomayor on the left. And so what difference does it make? That's when we can start to talk about what you asked, which is the symbolic difference of having an African-American woman, the first African-American woman on the court. And I would just say quickly that every single study that I've shown suggests that Diversity obviously makes a huge difference in terms of how the justices think about writing about a case when they, you know, it's always been interesting to me that all three of Justice Scalia, Justice Kennedy, Justice O'Connor would say that after you came out of a conference with Thurgood Marshall, your whole sense of the world was different, um, you know, that, that you knew what you didn't know. And that that really affected, for O'Connor, she said, it changed the way she thought about everything. And so I think all of the studies on diversity suggest that it changes the way you may write. Does it change a (laughs) 6-3 supermajority into something else? I don't think so. And maybe the very last thing I would say on this is in terms of the public's perception of the court – Again, all the studies seem to show that the public really does value having a court that looks like America and that that matters. But on the substantive legal front, I don't think that swapping out Breyer for any of the folks I've mentioned is going to make a huge, huge difference at the court. So if there are politics surrounding Biden's uh, decision on who is going to replace Breyer, there were also some pretty sharp politics about Breyer's decision to resign. And Dahlia, you just wrote a piece in Slate that argues that uh, although Breyer protested rather vigorously in the lead up to his resignation that he was being unpolitical, that his resignation and the way he resigned may have been one of the most political things he's ever done. Do you, I'm wondering if you could elaborate on that. I mean, I guess that is the existential knife edge that Breyer has lived on for decades, right? I mean, he, almost more than anyone on the current court, made a point of saying over and over and over again, for years, by the way, long before this polarized moment, we are not politicians. He used to say we are not junior varsity politicians. We are not legislators in robes. If you think that we are just pulling the lever based on, you know, our politics, you're wrong. And even though, you know, we've heard protests to that effect from Amy Coney Barrett, you know, she was sitting next to Mitch McConnell when she said it. When Samuel Alito has said it, he was giving uh, a a very inflammatory speech. I I think Breyer really believed it. It wasn't PR for him. He really, deep in his bones, believes that justices are different from political actors. And so the idea that he would time his resignation in such a way, you know, this could have happened in May or June, I think which is how historically the last couple of decades, that's when we've seen, I think, Justice Souter maybe announced in April. But January's early. And the only reason that most folks can see for doing it this early is because he wanted to give a 
great big runway <laughs> to the Biden administration to get somebody confirmed in his stead and not leave it to July when we get up close to the November elections. And so I guess I would just say this is one of those places where if Mitch McConnell hadn't continued to insist that if the Senate flips in 2022, not only is he not going to uh, confirm a Biden appointee in 2024, but wouldn't do it in 2023, uh, this just jammed Breyer in some sense politically from both sides. He had incredible pressure from the left to step down and not get into the situation that Ginsburg unfortunately left us with. And from the right, uh, immense pressure to step down because Biden needed time to name a replacement. And I think that political jamming from all sides really didn't sit comfortably with his story that he tells us about him as a nonpartisan actor. And so in some sense, the heartbreak for me is that this guy who lived his life devoted to this one idea, which is don't look at me through the political lens just performed the most partisan political retirement. You know, you mentioned they're going to do serious vetting. I'm a little surprised that Biden said he's not going to name his pick until the end of next month. They knew this was, you know, coming for a while or likely to be coming. They knew who the leading candidates were. Why Aren't they ready to go, you know, right away with uh, a nominee? Jess, what do you think? Well, I think, firstly, he said he'd do it by the end of February. He didn't say he would do it at the end of February. And right. uh, we've, you know, uh, I think a couple of reasons. One, he does want to suggest that he is carefully deliberating among the candidates he's going to look at. Remember how he phrased it. He said, I'm going to pick someone of exceptional quality who will carry on the tradition of Justice Breyer, who is right. exemplary and blah, blah, blah. And I don't, and I think he was trying, who happens to be a black woman is what he said. He didn't say, I'm going to pick any black woman, the, you know, you know, the first one that walks through the door. He didn't say that. So part of it is going to be some sense that there are so many qualified black women, because uh, that's part of the message he wants to send, that he has to look carefully at each of them. Secondly, there is a history of there being sometimes unfortunate surprises in the background of Supreme Court nominees, including, you could say, one or two members of the current court. And therefore, yeah, they know a lot about him. Yes, these people have been vetted before. But when it's serious, they got to do the real thing. And I think they did not want before this there to be, you know, leaks about how the FBI is doing background checks on certain, you know, judges and so on before there's a vacancy on the court. That looks a little, little bad. So I think that's, you know, why there's going to be that timing. End of February still gives them plenty of time. Obama took that about that long to pick Merrick Garland. Although uh, Trump didn't take that long to pick uh, Amy Coney Barrett, as I recall. You mean Leonard Leo? Um, I think. <laughs> uh -huh. Inside uh, yeah, joke well. for Supreme Court watchers. Yes. Yes. Inside. That's what I'm about. I just also think this is good for Biden. I mean, in, in a you know week of just tanking horrible bad news. I think that this is a space that he's comfortable in. I think that this is something that he can exert some control over. This is kind of a nice story to tell. And so I think that just when you're surrounded by can't get on top of COVID, can't get on top of Ukraine, can't do anything right, this is a story that I think there's some reason to let it spin out for a little while because it's certainly, you know, exciting and goosing constituencies who are just pissed about everything else. I don't know. I think it's been, why not let this play out over a couple of news cycles? And frankly, even if there were a little bit of controversy around the pick, not too much, but a little bit, that wouldn't be bad for him either uh, in terms of, as you say, you know, juicing the Democratic base and continuing the conversation. And in that light, let's talk about, again, knowing that we don't have a nominee yet, but in terms of the, the likeliest candidates, the ones that you laid out, uh, Dahlia, you know, we know that uh, we're, we're way beyond the, that era uh, when there were bipartisan votes. Um, I think what Scalia, unanimous, 98 to 0, Ginsburg, 96 to 3, Breyer, 87 to 9. And lately, it's been essentially party line votes. And that, I'm sure, will happen in this case as well. But is it possible, do you think, that any of these possible nominees uh, would get a handful of Republican votes. Uh, the one that people talk about, 
the most is Katanji Brown-Jackson because three Republicans uh, already voted for her for the D.C. Circuit. But what do you guys think? Uh, let's start with uh, Jess. Yeah, I think it's the the wild card is is Senator Lindsey Graham, who was in some ways really flashed his his partisan teeth when he was chairman of the Judiciary Committee uh, in the Senate. On the other hand, he also has a kind of idiosyncratic approach to judicial nominations, where he simply says, "To the victor, the spoiled," and he voted for all of you know he voted for Obama's two nominees and was you know quite in the in the minority of Republicans who did that. And he said, "This is a president," you know the the old elections of consequences uh, you know saw this just goes with the turf. So. Uh, and he told us that too. Our report in the journal yesterday had him basically saying the same thing, that, uh, indicating that he was giving no reason to think that he would not support whoever Biden puts forward. So uh, I think, you know, in that way, he can maintain his own idea of, uh, con- you know, philosophical consistency. And you have, of course, the the two moderate women senators who have been sensitive to criticisms about, uh, you know, uh, implications for for women by the, you know, Trump's uh, appointees. Again, I think they are going to look at Biden puts forward a female candidate who happens to be black, who also happens to have all the qualifications that we would expect from a Supreme Court nominee. And, you know, the ones that have been named certainly all fit the pattern. If you looked at them, you know, behind a curtain, if they're rehearsing for the orchestra or auditioning for the orchestra, they would all be qualified. Why would they not support whoever the, the president picks? And, you know, as far as other Republicans go, I bet. Many of them would, in a different world, vote yes, but there are political reasons have nothing to do with these individual candidates that, you know, push them not to. I mean, the the, uh, the Republican National Committee put out a press release yesterday simply declaring that because the nomination will be made by Biden, automatically it will be some radical communist who's going to set fire to everything we believe in, period. So therefore, there's no... Yeah, no but, you know, look, it's not going to change the ideological balance in the court. You know, this strikes me as, you know, a gimme for any moderate Republican. Why not vote for Biden's pick? I mean, or yeah. a Romney, say, yeah, Romney, Tim Scott. I mean, wouldn't even be surprised. If, I mean, if if Graham is going to support, then, you know, Thune, a lot of, uh, you know, you could get 10 to 12 Republican votes for the nominee. They already didn't get those votes for her on the D.C. Circuit. Why are they all of a sudden going to get them, you know, for the... Because they've taken the heat over voting rights and this this would be an easy I think a lot of it, my understanding, I think this is the the story in the Post uh, flicked at this, but there's a decision to be made how much this is payback for Kavanaugh and Barrett too. And I think folks like John Cornyn are making noises saying, you know, after what you did to our guy, this is what we're going to do. And so I, I completely agree, Mike, that this is a gimme. You take the win and you don't, you know, you say this is a historic African-American woman candidate and you just turn down the temperature. But I think there's a, because Biden has been, as Jess said, so willing to make this about race and gender, there's a real tendency to just jump into the critical race theory, you know, affirmative action. Don't forget, affirmative action, the court just granted an affirmative action case. So there's a weird way in which that undergirds a lot of this. And I think the temptation to jump into the race wars and the gender wars might be pretty high. And I think that there's a lot of of feeling that because you did wrong by our guy Kavanaugh, we're gonna we're gonna do wrong by your guy. Right. So when someone you know from Katanji Brown Jackson's high school days comes forward and accuses her of you know drugging him and you know pulling her upstairs, I mean they'll they will really they'll really ride that horse uh, you know all, all the way. You know, actually, this is, you know, I have to say, because it is a gimme. You uh, should point out you're being facetious I'm being facetious, of course. I have no information that that any such allegation was made (laughs) against her. But um, want that clear for our listeners. uh, Yes, that's pure. uh, Yes, no, that's... that's, Jess uh, Braven said. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, I I said if. Jess uh, Braven uh, reporting. Uh uh, I'd say this, you know, because it is really pretty much a fait accompli, there'll be a narrow confirmation. The hearings sort of matter because Biden is framing this as it's time for a qualified black woman to be on the court. Looking at, well, what is a qualified black woman is going to become the question when we have those confirmation hearings, whoever it is, and how well the nominee uh, acquits herself may have an impact on some marginal Republican votes, right? That may be uh, 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 you know, something that, that, that affects it. But 
overall, though, the Republican approach seems to be that Biden is not a legitimate president. Anyone who works for him or is favored by him is automatically illegitimate and doing anything to perpetuate his control of the government is uh, anathema. I think that's kind of a theme of, of much of Republican politics now. And so what's in it for any Republican senator to vote for uh, a Biden nominee? What, 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 did, what do they get out of that? Well, you know, they they, they do like to uh, portray themselves as wanting African-American support and uh, open to people of color. And, uh, you know, I would think that there's a, a, a particularly after just how bruising the battle was over voting rights, I think that there's a that there will be a push by by more Republicans than you think to back this nominee. But I should say the one thing we can say with certainty is that Every Republican planning on running for president, i.e. Tom Cotton, Ted Cruz, and those, will adamantly oppose this nomination. You know, one thing I thought was interesting, uh, like I'm sure all of you, you're on too many mailing lists. So uh, contrasting the official press release from Senator Chuck Grassley's office with the press release or fundraising letter from the Grassley campaign committee that I received. The official press release praised Justice Breyer as a, you know, excellent jurist who loves his uh, country, who he has great respect for, and that Grassley will carefully scrutinize whoever Biden puts forward. The fundraising email to supporters was in huge red letters, you know, flash, emergency, Supreme Court vacancy. I need you to stand with me to stop Biden from putting a horrible radical Marxist on the court. I need your money now to stop this from happening. Okay, so you're seeing different messages aimed at different people and how they make their calculations. I think that the individual qualifications of the nominee are going to be pretty low on the list of factors that make a difference for the vote by by many, many senators. So if we can, I just uh, want to take a little bit of a longer beat on Breyer himself and the legacy that he left the court. I think possibly one of the most interesting things is, is that Breyer for his entire tenure on the court was never in the kind of in a a court that had a quote unquote liberal majority yet dahlia you you say that he was a kind of a meticulous thorough justice who did have an impact i think on the way the court made its decisions and looked at some critical issues i'm wondering can tell us a little bit more about the legacy that he left and what kind of a justice he was yeah, it's such an interesting question because he was never at the helm or even a part of a court in which liberals were the majority. So in some sense, we have to backfill the story based on what it was to be on the sort of perennial losing side. And I think the important things about Breyer are he drove the left crazy. Um, you know, I, I keep hearing, you know, he he sided with the Chamber of Commerce all the time. He wasn't nearly uh, progressive enough for progressives. And he also was a deal maker. And that also drove the left crazy. I think that when you look at, at, at how he and Elena Kagan, for instance, dealt with the first Obamacare challenge, when they were in the interest of pulling Chief Justice Roberts over to preserve the core of the Affordable Care Act, kind of gave up on the Medicaid expansion, right? And that was seen as quintessential deal doing, horse trading, the kind of unseemly, unprincipled, you get to five hell or high water and you live with your principles, you know, at night when you brush your teeth. And I think that that tendency to sometimes subordinate lofty principle to just getting the job done uh, made a lot of critics crazy. I guess I will say that pragmatism is uh, disappearing at the court. I mean, I think he and Kagan represent, and, and, and to some degree, the chief justice, although there's no one to do a deal with anymore. I mean, the, the, this 6-3 era is so interesting because in all the years that Jess and I have been covering the court, there was a swing justice who was in play, and now there really isn't. The median justice is Brett Kavanaugh. And so that set of superpowers, which is, I'm going to pick off O'Connor. I'm going to get that bump at the center of the Rehnquist court to do something they might not ordinarily do. Uh, That superpower has been lost to him since Amy Coney Barrett came onto the court. And so maybe I would just end 
by saying, you know, he famously, there was a pair of Ten Commandment cases, the same term, and he found one set was constitutionally improper, the other one was just fine. Like, everybody went crazy. They were like, what the hell is the principle here? But in some sense, that willingness to say, I'm going to do what I have to do so that we can all get up tomorrow and do this again and look kind of oracular and functional, that I think uh, will leave the court with him in a lot of ways. I know it's kind of, you know, fashionable to view, you know, some of Breyer's recent comments about, listen, we're not partisan hacks. We are, you know, serious people trying to do our job as, as sort of quaint, you know, people, you know, that was, it may have been true once, but wasn't, it isn't true now. But look, you know, not to diminish in any way the looming abortion decision, which I think will be, you know, the big news in the country, you know, in June when we finally get that. But, you know, yeah, <laughs> yeah um, I'm going out on a limb there, uh, but, um, you know, we'll probably want to um, have you back to uh, talk about it. But look, we just had an opinion, uh, a ruling from them the other day on turning Trump's documents over to the January 6th committee and all of the Trump appointees went along with that, just as all of the Trump appointees rejected Trump's bid to uh, uh, overturn the election uh, when they had a Supreme Court, when it came before the court. You know, I think they don't like being called Trump appointees. That might be one of the reasons some were floating in the background. All right, but, but my point is they don't always act uh, you know, purely along partisan lines, right? That there is signs at, at times on, on on cases like this where they go independent, you know, they go their independent ways. And shouldn't we celebrate that a bit, Jess? Celebrate might not be the word, but yes, it's true that there is a difference between ideology and partisanship. And Breyer does acknowledge that there is ideological differences on that court. And there is a relationship between, you know, partisan identity and ideology, but they're not identical. And that's what you're seeing there. I mean, the night before we we spoke, the court by a vote of five to four authorized an execution to go forward in Alabama. Justice Amy Coney Barrett joined the four liberals or three, sorry, old habits, three liberals to vote in dissent and say that execution should be held up for some further proceedings. Okay. There was a surprise, you know? I mean, they're looking at these things individually differently. They have different jurisprudences. But, you know, overall, though, there is a clear ideological tilt on that court. And whoever succeeds Breyer will probably vote almost uh, identically to the way he would have voted in losing uh, all those cases. You know, one thing, though, about about Breyer's politics, we are going to talk a little bit about him before we uh, consign the still-serving justice to uh, the past. You know, he talked about being against politics, but his actual manner uh, was something he often said he learned from maybe one of the most political people in Washington, Senator Edward Kennedy, his boss for many years uh, on the Senate Judiciary Committee and how Kennedy would make deals and get things done, even with Republicans, even while being someone who was so clearly identified with the left uh, on the political spectrum. And Breyer you know, when you see what Breyer did on the Affordable Care Act case that Dahlia discussed, that's we see what he learned at Ted Kennedy's uh, arm, uh, uh, you know, in, in play. And by the way, Elena Kagan, too, she's also someone who comes in with a political background and the, the politics turns up in the way they operate on the court, not in, you know, are we doing things only to benefit Democrats, you know, in the election coming up right now? You know, in a sense, the court may become less political because none of the you know candidates we've heard for a Breyer's successor have that kind of experience in politics uh, that the way he uh, he he had. Uh, so a weird combination of uh, a pragmatic you know politician and uh, you know head in the clouds professor he brought uh, to the court. It is interesting to note that the Supreme Court is losing one of only two members who have any uh, legislative branch experience kind of leaving the the court essentially filled with people who are executive branch, who have a little bit of executive branch privilege but by and large are just you know kind of very much ju- creatures of the judiciary. And if I could add just to gild that beautiful lily. But I I think that there's one other way this inflects 
the way the court functions, which is it's not just that he had, you know, legislative branch experience. It's not just that he I interviewed him last year and he was saying how much he learned from watching folks in the Judiciary Committee reach across the aisles and do a deal. What what Jess was just suggesting, you subordinate your ego, you find the point at which you agree and you don't take credit, right? Like all of those are political instincts. But I just think if you broaden the aperture a tiny bit, this is a guy who fundamentally comes of age believing in government itself. And his whole orientation toward the world has been government can do good for people if you help government do good for people. And his absence from the court, it's not just that experiential, I know how government works because I was part of of government, but also this attitudinal shift that we are seeing at the court most recently in the OSHA mask or test cases, where there is a growing, you know, you can call it non-delegation doctrine, you can call it any number of constitutional doctrines. There's a growing, burgeoning majority of the court that isn't all that fond of government and that thinks that government should do much less. And Having Breyer, who really, like, this is, like, the blood that runs through him is that government fixes stuff, leaving the court, I think that's a really profound shift that we haven't fully thought through. Yeah, and there's and there's one, you know, related point I, I'd make on this. You know, when I started covering the court, Breyer and Scalia represented real polls, not just in outcomes, but in judicial method. And Breyer, he reflected, you know, what what he called active liberty. Some people called purposivism as the approach. You look at the purpose of the law, of the statute, of the constitutional provision, and and you look at it in this big context. What's the point of this? What's the reason this is here? And as a court trying to construe it, we work to help the legislature make uh, effective its ambition. We help them do what they were trying to do in the way we construe these legal provisions. On the other end was Scalia saying, who knows what they wanted to do? We know what the words they put on paper, and our job is to figure out what those words exactly mean and follow it. And if they think we got it wrong, they can change the words through a, a amendment or, or, or new legislation. Okay, those were the two approaches. And they were battling, and that was a court that had uh, David Souter, you know, a, a moderate Republican on it, uh, you know, Anthony Kennedy, and, and, and which, you know, which approach was going to win was, was up in the air. And now we know who won. Justice Breyer outlived uh, his good friend Justice Scalia, but Scalia had the had the victory because you have you know a court where they are committed to this textualist, as they say, approach where it's the words that they're going to look at and the words are going to mean what they say they mean and what we might think the government was trying to do by passing a law called the Occupational Safety and Health Law doesn't really matter because they didn't talk about nationwide vaccine mandates in the face of a global pandemic, so there's no authority to do it. You know, that's the that's really, I think, a, a difference in, in legal philosophy. You know, Elena Kagan clearly is sympathetic to that, although she said we're all textualists now, uh, famously, at, at Harvard Law School. But that approach to the law is, is not going to prevail uh, at this Supreme Court, uh, except in the rarest instances. Before we leave Justice Breyer, I I just want to ask one last question, because the other thing that the Supreme Court is losing with him is its great asker of hypotheticals. He was famous for convoluted, mysterious, indecipherable, often, hypotheticals. Dahlia, what was your favorite question that uh, Breyer ever asked from the bench? I have so many, but probably my most favorite, and I don't know if this goes exactly into the bucket of seven-part hypotheticals with two footnotes, um, because there were a lot of those. But for sure, my favorite (laughs) prior question was in a 2009 Fourth Amendment case, uh, Safford versus Redding, which was... um, a strip search case uh, for a, a middle school girl who was strip searched by school officials who were trying to find pernicious drug ibuprofen in her undergarments. She was part of some alleged drug ring that was passing ibuprofen around. In any event, it was one of those cases where there was only one woman at the court, and that was RBG. 
um, O'Connor had left, and uh, the the male justices thought the whole setup was increasingly hilarious, and there were like questions about like, oh, did they search her from the outside in or the inside out, and like guffaw guffaw, and and Justice Ginsburg was thinking it was less and less funny. And then Justice Breyer remembered back to his own youth where I guess people hid contraband. I don't know. But he starts to ask this question and he he goes, in my experience, people sometimes did stick things in my underwear in gym class. Well, not in my underwear, whatever, whatever. I mean, I don't think it's beyond human experience. Anyway, the more he tried to make it better, really the more appalling it became. Um, And like describing people sticking things in his underwear at, at gym class as a child. In any event, the only reason it's my favorite uh, of many favorites is because it set RBG off to such an extent that she afterwards gave an interview to USA Today where she was like, we need more women on the court. This is, <laughs> this is insane. One other thing I wanted to ask both of you guys, which is about the possible nominees that we will be hearing from later, I guess, next month. What's striking to me is uh, there's just been so little reporting, as far as I can tell, and and discussion about the kind of substantive legal views of these nominees, potential nominees. I mean, usually when there's a Supreme Court resignation, which we've all covered, you know, you're immediately debating their positions on hot button issues, abortion, guns, affirmative action, you know, uh, scouring the paper trail. What have they said? What speeches have they, get, have they, have they given? Now, I guess my question is, we, we may get some of that, but it just doesn't seem as urgent or pressing as it has in the past. Is, is that because with a 6-3 conservative majority, the, the conservatives firmly in control of the court, it just doesn't matter that much? The stakes aren't that high? Or is it, to some extent, also because it, it is just sort of accepted fact now that a Democratic president is going to nominate someone with the so-called right views and a uh, Republican president is going to do the same thing? Jess, why don't you start? Sure. Well, I think that uh, the people who are going to be scaring that, of course, are you know the, the, the conservative groups looking for ways to discredit whoever Biden nominates, looking for some kind of remark that that they'll construe as, as radical, such as when, uh, you know, Justice Sotomayor had said, uh, you know, the, the wise Latina uh, quote that she was saying, perhaps, you know, partly in jest or to, you know, shore up her, her audience or something that was taken as a as a almost, you know, racial re- remark or or when she said, of course, judges make policy. And of course, and the word policy has a particular meaning in, in legal decision making that's not the same as legislative policymaking, but nonetheless, that was taken as, oh, she wants to legislate from the bench. That wasn't really fair. So they're going to look for gaffes. They're going to look for things that can be, you know, or academic articles, undergraduate articles, and so forth. And so is the White House. And so, of course, the reporters will be looking for those things. Right now, though, because these are, you know, sitting judges who are under consideration, that at least uh, they've already been combed over at least once or twice for that kind of thing. And nothing, you know, there's nothing immediately, you know, sticking out from their past that would provoke the other side the way that, say, Justice Kavanaugh's role in the Whitewater investigation was a a stick in the eye to to Democrats who, who who didn't care for that. So we'll be looking for it and we'll be trying to figure out not so, you know, what are the differences between these nominees? What how might they treat different kinds of cases? Part of it may probably be, though, what came before them. I mean, these are, you know, you've got right now one who's a, just a trial judge in South Carolina. You know, Judge uh, uh, Katanji Brown-Jackson was a trial judge in Washington, D.C., but her caseload would have been very different. You know, and Justice Kruger in California is hearing appellate uh, cases involving California state law. So, you know, they're going to have different caseloads, uh, and and that will lead to kinds of different opinions. So we'll be looking for ones that are, that are uh you know, that are that are notable there. Two other comments I might offer you. Maybe you can cut them in or cut them out if, if you want. Just on just on the on the hypotheticals, <laughs> I, I think that you know what struck me when the, the Supreme Court issued the customary statements of uh, how much we like our departing colleague the other day, that the Chief Justice specifically discussed those hypotheticals. And and he said in uh, I would I would say uh, in an affectionate way, uh, he referred to uh, Justice Breyer's fanciful hypotheticals during oral argument that have befuddled counsel and colleagues alike. So I think we're not the only ones who uh, came to appreciate uh, the, the Breyer uh, style. And if we are looking at these particular candidates, Biden in some ways may have taken a, a playbook uh, move from Trump 
in looking at, at Judge Jackson, because in signaling in ways for, uh, for Justice Kennedy to move on, there was a lot of talk from the Trump White House about nominating one of his aides, particularly Brett Kavanaugh, who uh, Justice Kennedy uh, has great affection for and who had clerked for him. Uh, and who Kennedy saw, and you know, in some ways, as a as a protege, uh, we'll see how how right he was. But similarly, you know, Judge Jackson not only was a clerk for Justice Breyer, she also served on the U.S. Sentencing Commission, which is an agency that is a Justice Breyer brainchild. That Justice Breyer's brother, Judge uh, Chuck Breyer from San Francisco, is currently a member of. I mean, she is somebody who is uh, quite. Uh, uh, bled in the Briar way and the Briar approach, whether she you know carries that forward uh, on the bench or not, she understands him and what he is about. And to the extent that Justice Briar would feel more comfortable leaving, thinking his legacy uh, will be in good hands, focusing indirectly perhaps on on Judge Jackson is a way to kind of move that along. And that, of course, we should point out that uh, Judge Jackson's most notable ruling from the bench the one in which she directed that uh, Don McGahn, the former Trump White House counsel, had to testify, was a uh, a huge decision for Democrats on Capitol Hill. And that solidified, I think, her frontrunner status for this nomination. But before we go, I mentioned before the looming Mississippi abortion ruling, which we expect to be coming the end of June, early July. This strikes me as, you know, perhaps the biggest, most consequential Supreme Court ruling in decades. I want each of you to go out on a limb and tell us what that opinion is going to say and what the fallout will be. Dahlia, you go first. Two tea leaves to the extent that there are tea leaves. And I'm always loath to make exactly the prediction you're asking me to make. But the two are, you know, one, SB8, the Texas quote unquote vigilante or bounty bill that the court has allowed to be in effect since September 1st and has rebuffed multiple requests from the parties that this is exigent and that women in Texas have not been able to get an abortion after eight weeks uh, for months. Uh, the fact that that's still in place and that uh, even most recently when the court was asked again to intervene, the court did not suggest to me that the court thinks there's no, no problem with uh, a de facto afor- abortion ban that goes on for months and months. And I think that signals that they're willing to swing big uh, on Mississippi. And then on Mississippi itself, when the Dobbs case was argued, uh, and a lot of us were looking for a consensus at that sort of center right of the court from Barrett, Kavanaugh, the Chief Justice, some willingness to say maybe we tweak the 24-week viability line from from Casey, maybe we make it a little earlier. There was none of that. The Chief Justice was the only person who was interested in tweaking the viability line. Brett Kavanaugh pretty much wrote a a, a, a performance art piece on why precedent sucks and maybe you just reverse cases when they're wrong. So I saw no interest in uh, the Chief Justice's solo project to uphold the core of Roe and Casey and change the viability line. That suggests to me that we will see an all out overturning of Roe. Full scale overturning of Roe. Just. What do you think? Well, likewise, you know, uh, uh, I would defer to the expert who said time will tell, but all the indicators that that uh, Dahlia mentioned are, are quite spot on. I would add this point, you know, a lot of the criticism, and you saw this from from uh, the, the dissenters, I think Justice Sotomayor in, uh, in some of the, the, the Texas litigation so far have been talking about the court being, say, political by, uh, you know, uh, if they were to overrule uh, Roe v. Wade. And that uh, only because the personnel in the court changed. But I'm not sure that's how the majority, the conservative majority, sees it. I mean, most of them sort of grew up in the idea that Roe v. Wade was an illegitimate decision that itself was political and eroded the the reputation of the court. And their legal careers have been, you know, built around the idea that that was a huge, huge, huge wrong turn. And if there is political blowback, which some people speculate there could be, at least in some states were the court to overrule Roe v. Wade, that would simply prove how non-political the Supreme Court is, that they're following the law regardless of how that affects 
the Republican Party or the makeup of legislatures or Congress in the future. They're just doing what's right without looking at those consequences. From I think that is how they will view uh, what they are doing if that's what they do. Now, if they do something else, we'll, we'll you know look at their reasoning and, and so forth. But uh, I don't see any, I think that on the majority right now, I don't think they see any of the traditional factors that are supposed to uphold questionable precedents benefiting Roe. And I think they see many, many, many reasons why, in their view, the constitutional structure uh, would be uh, cleaner and uh, more uh, in keeping with its uh, so original basis. So I'm just thinking to wrap up here, a 5-4 decision overturning Roe, that's... No. That would be... No? 6-3. 6-3? Roberts? Roberts you could, I mean, there are a lot of... There are a few ways it could break down. I mean, if the chief justice sticks with his approach that that the Mississippi law might be okay, but there's no reason uh, in the case presented to go beyond it, you could see, say, theoretically, five to overrule Roe, concurring opinion, you know, by, by the chief justice upholding the Mississippi law, and then three dissents. On the other hand, there is a lot of benefit to being in the majority because if you're the chief justice, you decide what that opinion is going to say. So if there is no question that the court overrules Roe, the chief would have a big incentive to be the one who uh, guides what that looks like and what the court says about it. So, you know, that's a, a factor to to consider. I would say there will be at least three votes to strike down the Mississippi law. I feel I feel I can confidently predict <laughs> that think. there will be three <laughs> there there may be as many as three votes uh, <laughs> to strike down the Mississippi so uh, cautious. Law. You're so cautious, right? Can I say one quick thing that I've said on this show before, but I I always feel like I have to say it, which is you also have to look at the whole chessboard and that this June, July are not going to bring about just Dobbs, the abortion case. We're going to have the biggest gun case we've had in a decade. We're going to have a massive EPA case. We're going to have a massive uh, church funding, school funding case. I mean, there are so many things. There's nothing that's not on the docket. And I think that you can't look at any one case in isolation, at least John Roberts doesn't. And I think part of the question has to be, what do we do 6-3? How many of these do we do 6-3? Because it's going to be, I think, by any measure, the biggest term you know we've ever seen. But I do think that doing all of it at once uh, sometimes looks a little crazy in a, in a midterm election year. And so to not think about those other things that are also coming down uh, and what the appetite is to do all of them at once is to sort of miss a little bit of the board. If you are right, well, you're clearly right because all those decisions are coming. We will want to have both of you back to process where the court has come down and what it all means. Thanks for joining us. It was great. 